0: All right, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, you'll need them this morning. Uh, We are, uh, Patrick is on vacation, and so we may or may not have support on the side screens. We like to do that, uh, particularly for guests. But if you make a habit of coming to Community Church, I'd like you to have your sword with you. Uh, I'm not particular. It can be uh, printed, uh, leather-bound, paperback. Uh, You can use your phone. Uh, but I want to encourage you to always have God's Word in front of you. Uh, the Bereans were commended by the Apostle Paul because they didn't just listen to what Paul said. They searched the Scriptures to see that what he said was true. Uh, so I want us to be a, a people of the book. I think that's consistent with who we are as a church. Uh, and so again, just encourage you. And this morning, we're going to look at a number of different passages. So uh, your finger's ready to go, all right? So we're starting uh, today a, a series I'm titling Essentials. And I want to begin this morning with an introductory message uh, to accomplish two things. One, uh, to establish a, a guiding premise that we'll carry with us uh, through the course of this 10-week series. And then second, uh, to provide at the very end a bit of a roadmap uh, for where we're going. I want to start this morning uh, with the question, what are the essentials of life on earth? What are the essentials of life on earth? And we could look for a number of different answers to that. If you Googled it, you'd come up with a lot of different things. But we'll go directly to uh, who's been recognized most on this subject uh, since the uh, the 1940s, and that's Abraham Maslow, who uh, architected uh, a motivational framework for how humans approach uh, life here on planet Earth. It's called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Uh, occasionally, I like to go uh, to the board, uh, because uh, I'm an incredibly skilled artist. I'm going to ask you right now uh, not to be envious of my talents, all right? But if you're, uh, if you're familiar with Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, uh, then you'll know that it basically forms a pyramid. And this pyramid represents uh, from infancy, uh, hopefully all the way through adulthood and then eventually death, uh, kind of the progression of how we humans approach our needs. Now the essentials of life would form this very first one uh and uh, I'm a good artist I'm not necessarily a good speller I know you can't necessarily see this from here, but the first of Maslow's needs is physiology. And physiology are things like air and water and shelter, you know, clothing. Uh, These are the things that we have to have if we're going to survive life outside the womb. And so most of us have that provided for us. We didn't have to worry about that. Uh, And then moving on up, Maslow says once these needs are met and we've stopped worrying about them, uh, then the next thing is we want... Uh, we need to feel a sense of safety. And then after safety, uh, we need to feel a sense of love or belonging. And then esteem. And esteem is different from being appreciated or loved. It's esteem in knowing that my life has a purpose, that I'm making a contribution, that I can earn a living. And then finally, Maslow says the highest level on his chart is what he calls self-actualization. This is when we've matured to the place uh, where we are not only self-aware, but we don't need other people uh, to validate us. We, we're secure in who we are. Now, the thing about Maslow's hierarchy, it's helpful in terms of us kind of wrestling with what does it mean to meet basic needs in life. Uh, but the truth is, we can spend a lifetime uh, striving to fulfill each of these, and we might even, in our, especially in the Western culture, we might even wind up at self-actualization, but this is written from a secular psychological standpoint. Uh, in other words, the most important science, theology, uh, is not factored into this. This is uh, doesn't take into account the idea that man is spiritual. So we could spend a whole lifetime striving to climb up Maslow's hierarchy, but the Bible says, Jesus says, in the end, even if we reach self-actualization, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? yet loses his own soul. So the truth is, we're born into a world striving. And this series that I want to embark on is, is, I've subtitled it, You're Meant for Thriving, Not Merely Striving. Because each of us, uh, just naturally shaped by our environment, are apt to think humanistically. We're apt to think of ourselves as the center of our own world. And if we're not careful, we will edge God out. Kim Blanchard said that's the definition of the word ego, edging God out. And so my contention this morning is that too many of us uh, have spent so much time trying to meet our own needs that we fail to understand we're not really living. And so in this next 10 weeks, I want to talk about how uh, this idea of uh, a really living, about thriving instead of just surviving, how that intersects with a healthy church. And in the course of this, I hope to call you as an individual Christ follower to discover more of what you were meant to have in your relationship with Christ. And at the same time, how a healthy church cultivates that. And it's only as that reciprocal relationship happens that we will be ready to do the work that God has given us to do. That is reaching more people who don't know Him. So this morning, take Maslow's hierarchy and set it aside because we're going to consider the queen of all sciences, which is theology. And discover that God has something to say on the subject. I want to give you three ideas in this introductory message, and the first is this. Number one, God created you to thrive, not merely survive. Again, in the West, we adopt this because opportunity is afforded us. We're able to be educated, we're able to pursue our dreams. We have, it's endowed in our national documents that we have the right. Uh, to pursue liberty, for liberty, uh, happiness, I'm sorry, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Sorry about that. And so we kind of come to it in in an entitled way, which is dangerous, because enough of us succeed at this process, this secular process, that we think we don't need God. Whereas in the third world, where they don't have all of the things that were afforded, they desperately need to know that there's some hope outside of the world they exist in. And so it's good news, not just for the third world, but for us today to know that it's God's idea that we would thrive and not merely survive. Psalm 139 says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven into the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me. If you're struggling in your marriage, in your career, just generally in the sense of getting by in life, if you're just surviving, then it should be good news to you to know today that God saw you. He formed you. You're his idea. He wants for you a life of thriving, not merely surviving. Genesis chapter one goes beyond that and says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And what we discover from Genesis is that every one of us, men, women, boys and girls, we were all created in the image of God. We're, we're unique among creation. Only we share certain attributes of the living God. And endowed in that, uh, that image-bearing self is the idea that God wants us to thrive, not merely survive. He doesn't want us struggling to reach self-actualization. He wants us to rest in knowing that He, was, that he loved us and He created us. It was, we were His forethought, and He has a job for us to do. He wants us to thrive in life, not merely survive. John chapter 10, verse 10, a verse that's uh, on our website uh, as a church. Jesus says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Now, if we're to survive in the way that, that God thinks about, uh, survival, if we're, if we're actually to move beyond that and thrive the way Jesus talks about when he mentions abundant life, then we have to define our terms because defining our terms shapes our trajectory. See, most of us have adopted a, an American concept of Christianity. Uh, In fact, there are many preachers on television that will reinforce this idea that, that by thriving, what God means is that you will prosper, that you won't have pain, that you won't have problems. It's called the prosperity gospel, and it's another gospel from what we see here. So defining our terms is very important. By surviving, we don't just mean getting by. Because you can spend a lifetime of surviving, and you're not going to get out of this world alive your heart will stop at some point, you'll breathe your last, and then you'll discover that there's an eternity waiting on you. So you can survive this life, and some of us do it quite well because we're successful. But if you do that apart from God, you will never arrive at really living. You will never understand what God meant uh, when, he, uh, when Jesus spoke this idea of abundant life. So that leads me uh, to the second idea that a life of thriving begins with a proper foundation. A life of thriving begins with a proper foundation. When Jesus said, I've come that you might have life, the, the, the statement that precedes that is that life is going to be difficult. You have an enemy who wants to undermine the very thing that God's, God intends. God created you fearfully, wonderfully, and intentionally. He made you in His image, and it's His desire that you would reflect His image to others around you and bring Him glory All of these things are what God wishes for you in a life of thriving. But apart from Him, you can do nothing, Jesus said. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. So what does it mean to have a proper foundation uh, to enable us to thrive? Well, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke these words. And the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So again, just to reiterate, when Jesus calls us to abundant life, when we embrace this idea that God wants us to thrive, not merely survive, he's not talking about a life absent storms. And that's good news, isn't it? Because some of us have already tasted the hardness of life. So when the hardness of life hits, when we walk through a valley, when a storm comes our way, it is not an indicator that God is not for us. Rather, it should be a gut check to make sure that we've founded our life on a foundation that will not fail us. And friends, there is only one. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the rock upon which we should build our lives and our church. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, this is spoken to a world where there are a plethora of options. In fact, the highest embraced value in our culture is tolerance, is acceptance. Everybody should find their own way, but this is not what the Scriptures teach. And as a church, we do our culture no favor when we soft-pedal what Jesus has said. There is only one foundation upon which to build your life. And if you wish to really live, if you wish to thrive, then you must know that Jesus is the only way. When Jesus tells this story between the, the rock and the sand, the rock is Jesus Christ and the sand is anything else, your spouse, your children, your career, anything else, your American status, your political party, anything else that you wish to build your life on, you will find in time that it will fail you. And all you will have done is survived. You will not have thrived. Now, what we're talking about here is not religion. Lots of people have religion. Lots of people go to a place they call church. What we're talking about is a relationship. And a relationship is intensely personal, which means that I can't have a relationship for God for my wife, and she can't have one for me. I can't have a relationship for my brother Jeff, and he can't have a relationship with God for me. What the Scriptures teach us is that if we would really live, if we would come alive, then we must come to recognize, as the Scriptures teach, that each one of us is a sinner from birth with greater needs than Abraham Maslow talked about. We're separated from a God who loves us and created us. And it is only in turning to His Son, Jesus Christ, whose death on the cross atones for my wrong, that we are enabled to really live. We're forgiven, and the Spirit of God is placed inside us. We're quickened and made alive. And this makes Jesus the foundation of my life. This makes Jesus the foundation of your life. Is it true? Amen. The only way to really thrive in life, the only way to really live, is to have Jesus Christ as my foundation. Now, because a lot of people go to church, in fact, there are probably some here who have a form of religion but deny the power thereof, it needs to be underscored that this is an intensely important and eternal decision. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, Shortly before telling the story about the sand foundation and the rock, he says these words, Not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. I never knew you. See, the dangerous thing for we humans is that we can put out a pretty good front, a facade, if you will. We can talk the talk, we can emulate the actions, but it's what's really in our heart that determines our standing before God. He knows our hearts. We have an inability to accurately assess someone. So when someone tells me, as often is the case, they have a relationship with God and they can have that independently of the church, then I recognize that, A, they don't understand the gravity of what Jesus gave his life for, and, B, they may well fall into that passage that Jesus uttered those words, I do not know you. Because Jesus isn't just about saving individuals. He's about redeeming a people. And that leads me to the third idea: that your best life I'm living my best life I hear that I see that phrase on Facebook, and it usually comes accompanied with some you know killer picture of, of what they're doing in life, or maybe like a five-course meal they take a picture of. Don't you always like seeing that? I'm living my best life. it's a nice steak. Your best life is vitally linked to Christ's church. There is no other foundation for you to live a life of thriving than Jesus Christ. But you also need to know that there is no such thing as a churchless Christianity. If you've told yourself that it's possible to have a relationship with God and yet do so apart from the church, then you fail to understand exactly what it is that God is doing in our world. And so I want to end on this point because the idea of pursuing a life of uh, thriving, the idea of abundant life uh, is interwoven uh, with the idea of a healthy, biblical, Christ-centered, kingdom-focused church. And the beautiful thing we will see is that it requires all of us to be that. Matthew chapter 16, verse 15 through 18 says, "'But who do you say that I am?' Jesus asked of the disciples. Simon Peter replied, "'You are the Christ, the Son of the living God.' And Jesus answered him much the way he would every one of us who identifies Jesus as God's Son. "'Blessed are you, Simon, "'for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, "'but my Father who is in heaven. "'And I tell you, you are Peter,' On this And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, there's a wordplay because Peter's name is very similar uh, to the Greek word for rock, and so there's a, a wordplay there. But make no mistake, when Jesus talks about founding his church, and Peter would be the one who he would give the keys to the kingdom, he would preach the first message on Pentecost, the church is founded upon the life, sacrifice, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is his power that makes the church something more than the Lions Club, something more than the Moose Lodge. It, is, it stands apart from every other organization in the world because it is not merely an organization, it is an organism. It is the body of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4 verse 11 then, Paul says, this is Jesus, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builder's which has become the cornerstone. So what I want you to see is that if there's no other foundation for your life than Jesus Christ, I want you to recognize that you're sharing that foundation with something much bigger than who you are. Jesus is big enough not only to be the foundation for your life and mine and the person beside you and people all around the world over 2,000 years, he's big enough to be the foundation of this thing called the church and so the idea of an abundant life in him is interwoven with what he's doing in the church let me give you three thoughts on the church number one the church is a people not a place we gather today as the church we're not at the church now we're thankful for this building we're thankful that it's warm it's not always warm but then in those cases we can like huddle up together and rub our hands we're thankful for what God has given us. But this is just brick and mortar. This is, a, is going to decay and eventually it will not be here. We, we are the church. Individual lives founded upon the foundation of Jesus Christ joined together, not by our own decision. You didn't join the church. Jesus placed you in the church. The church is a, a, a people, not a place. Again, God is not just saving individuals. He's saving a people. The church is the people of God, which means that Christians, uh, unlike the culture around us, are not to be drawn by things like autonomy and independence. This is what is wrong with Western Christianity. It's a very American culture, rugged individualism. John Wayne, I like him. I love John Wayne. But there are no self-made men in this world. There's only one, Jesus Christ, and he's our Savior. He's saving us from something. And, and and the worst thing for you and I is to live with this idea that we can be independent. You know, we can be like Frank Sinatra and do it our way and live autonomous from other people where no one has any say-so in our lives. We just go our own way and we might reach self-actualization, but in the end, we will leave this place with nothing. Now, we're a part because of Christ of something much bigger than who we are. Much bigger than self. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 through 22, Paul writes, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. You have never joined a church as a Christ follower where you weren't already a member of the universal church. When you trusted Jesus Christ, he placed you in his body. Paul continues, "...built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." So when we come to know Christ as our savior, then God places us into the church and in another metaphor is is that we're part of God's family. In fact, John says, "What manner of love is this that God should lavish on us the privilege of being sons and daughters of God?" Yet that is what we are. So think about church, if you will, kind of like your family. You didn't choose your family. Some of you wish you could have but you were born into a family. And one of the great things about family is it's the place where no matter how much of a mess up you are, if everything goes well, you, you still get to be a part of the family. Like you don't, you don't get to at any point just like check out. When I was in elementary school, I decided that my parents were giving me a, a raw deal. Like, I don't know how old I was. I was, I was young. So I was going to run away. I packed a box, had a roll of toilet paper in it, uh, cause that's important. Physi- physiological needs. Had a roll of toilet paper. I had a King James Bible. And uh, probably, I don't know, some underwear, some, some other stuff. I got out on the Plains Highway and just started walking. It was a small town, so somebody that recognized me and was friends with my dad stopped and asked me where I was going. I was, I was running away. Thankfully, he picked me up, took me back, and the only thing that spared me from my dad's wrath was the fact that I had a King James Bible in my box. <laughs> so if you're getting ready to run away... Just have a Bible in your possession. It'll go good for you. It's like a get out of jail free card. But family's that place where ideally, I know it's not true for everyone here, but ideally family is that place where even though you didn't, get, you didn't choose to be in it, you belong there. And you belong there in such a way that you're loved for the good that you do and, and then, and then you're, you're loved even when you're bad. And that's the way God intends the church to be. It's a place of belonging, of people who are on a journey, Paul says, to become something more together than they are apart. Peter says the same thing, that we've we've become living stones. So we base our life upon the foundation of the rock, Jesus Christ, who's made us part of this building. And Peter says we've become living stones in this thing that God is doing. And the more that we press into what God wants to do among us, the more individually we will find ourselves living abundant life. But as long as you remain on the fringe, or maybe not even come, not only will you compromise your own calling to live an abundant life, to thrive, not merely survive, but you will also take away from what God wants to do in our church. We are a people who've been redeemed, not just a place. The second thought on church is that the church is a collection of committed members of a living body and not just consumers of a business. You're not consumers here. It's your job to stock the shelves. That's what Ephesians says. It's the pastor's job to train and equip the people to do the work of the ministry. And so we don't come here hoping that, that the worship team will serve up a great buffet of worship. And it will thrill our hearts. And the preaching will stir us and we'll, we'll think grand thoughts about God. Now all of that may well happen because God's just that good and, and His Spirit can use us in that way. But the truth of the matter is we're all here for one another. We're, we're not consumers And it's incredibly important in a culture that's all about consuming for me that the church shows the culture something different. We are committed members of the body of Christ, having been redeemed by our Lord and Savior, who is the foundation for our life and the foundation for the work that He is doing in us, through us, as us. This is what we're called to. So 1 Corinthians 12 says, For just as... The one, the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. The truth is, we need each other. We need each other. There are over fifty-one others in Scripture. Fifty-one others that attest to this idea that you are not a lone ranger. Fifty-one others that testify to the fact that you need other people not only affirming you and ministering to you, but gut-checking you and holding you accountable to your commitment to Christ. We need one another. We're to commit to one another, to love one another, to care for one another, to serve one another, to suffer together with one another, to rejoice for one another, to seek not our own desires, but that of the common good. We're in a living organism called the church. A church full of spiritually alive, growing people who should expect and encourage and equip one another to follow hard after Jesus Christ. And the more that we do that, the more we will spur one another on to thriving, not merely surviving. To being what God has called us to be. You know, life is just better done together. I am an intensely competitive person. I think that I should just be able to do whatever I put my mind to. So I'm not an accomplished skier. About probably 12 or 13 years ago, I picked up snowboarding because my teenage daughter wanted to learn snowboarding. My wife had skied. she went. The other kids, they all learned how to ski. So when we moved here, I decided that the thing I would be doing the most would be hanging out with my wife. And when we had the chance, I would ski with her. So I decided to switch skis to skis. And... On one of my first visits here, I got the chance to go with Al and Perry uh, to go skiing. And they are both exceptional coaches. It took us, all right, now just like hold your laughter, all right? It took us two and a half hours to make it down the Houston run because of me. I can't tell you how many times I fell. Thank God I didn't break anything. And the whole time, Perry's skiing backwards like he's just taunting me. That's what it was. But, but I will tell you, while there's a part of me that would just like to have tried to go my own way, figure it out on my own, and then get good enough so that then when you see me, wow, he's a good skier. That's, that's called pride. The truth is, I got a lot better a lot faster by having someone show me how. And this is what it means to be part of the church. There are people who can show you how to take the next step. There are people you can show how to take the next step. See, every one of us has something to offer, and this is why we must be committed members of the body and not merely consumers. Nominal Christians, that is Christians in name only, Christians who try to live outside the walls of the church or who at best stay on the fringes and show up at Easter and Christmas, uh, they They live a life disconnected, not just from the body of Christ, but from a vital sense of relationship with Jesus. And most often, they lack conviction, they lack joy, and they lack the wherewithal and spiritual power to turn away from their idols. And that is why they don't come. Because they don't want to give up the throne of their own life. But there's only one foundation for abundant living, and it's Jesus There's only one foundation for a healthy church, and it's Jesus. And we are called to pursue Him together. And as we do, He will teach us, sometimes through a person beside us, a brother or a sister, how to walk with Him, how to live uprightly, how to be what He's called us to be. And that brings me to my final thought. The church is the hope of the world because we are a sent people with a redemptive purpose far bigger than the individual self. Isn't it comforting when you look at yourself in the mirror and think, gosh, Jesus saved the world by age 33. I'm 51 and I don't even have enough for retirement. I haven't accomplished that much. Not written a book. Not been on the speaking circuit. You ever look at yourself like that? Isn't it comforting to know that it's not about me? It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And oh, for grace. Grace that He has given me an involvement. He's given me a place in something that's far bigger than just me. God calls the church to be distinct from the world through faith in the gospel and conformity to His character. In that same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says we're to be two things. You're to be salt and you're to be light. This is what we're called to do. This means that we have to look differently. It matters very much that I call you out of just surviving. Because as long as there's no difference between you and the world, you are like salt that's lost its saltiness. You're like a light bulb that's gone out. It matters immensely that we as sons and daughters of God press hard into Jesus Christ and learn how to thrive through all of the seasons of life, yes, including suffering and heartache, so that the world will see Jesus in us. In that same passage, in chapter 5, verse 3 through 12, Jesus gives the Beatitudes, which are an accurate description, not what you will hear some televangelist preaching, but an accurate description of what we're called to be. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are indicators of brokenhearted trust. You see, the world says that you should... Strive to make something of yourself. Be somebody. Be number one. Look out for yourself. This is not the life of a Christ follower. We are called to come to an end of ourselves where we're broken, where we're mournful, where we hunger and thirst for something that we do not possess. And then Jesus will grant it to us. And then he makes us like himself. He says, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. And then in an counterintuitive way so that we recognize that the life of a Christ follower, that a life in this world looks differently following Jesus Christ than life in the world. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. It's not a great poster, recruiting poster for Christianity, but it is the truth. We follow a man who is acquainted with many sorrows, but he has redeemed us from our sin. He's made us part of the work that he is doing And he's calling us to live abundant life. We're not called to be perfect. We're just to walk in repentance. We're made to thrive, not merely survive. So I hope that over the next nine weeks, uh, you will understand how intertwined this idea of abundant life in Christ and a healthy, vibrant church are woven together. And the more that you and I, as individuals, are placed on the chain our place in the room, our place in the body, the more that we pursue Jesus Christ for the abundant life that he's offered us, it will have a ripple effect on others around us. And the more that we do that together, the more this church will become healthy. And the healthier this church becomes, the more we will watch God do exceedingly above that which we can ask or even imagine. This is what we're called to. Jesus is the foundation for life. He is the non-negotiable. He's the essential. He's what's missing from Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. In the coming weeks, we're going to talk about the role of God's Word in your personal life and in the church. We're going to talk about knowing God fully. We have a culture that loves the idea that there's a God who loves, but they don't understand that He's just and He's holy. We have to know who God is fully. We're going to talk about good news, the greatest news, Talk about life change and reaching people, biblical community and accountability and spiritual growth and serving others. All intended to lay the foundation for where God is taking us in this new season of ministry. But I end today with this. Whatever it is that God is currently leading you through, He's attempting to draw you a little closer to an end of yourself, to where you will rely more fully upon the foundation of your life. Friend, He's a sure foundation. He's the surest. All that you need to overcome that sin that so besets you. All that you need to repair your marriage which seems broken. All that you need for wisdom to know how to steer your children. All that you need to know how to live for Him in a workplace That's where he seems so absent. All that you need is Jesus. The same need that you have for Jesus is the same need that I have for Jesus. And the more that we lock arms together, the more that we pursue the foundation of our lives, it's not easy. Time and time again, we have to deny ourselves the unthrone of our hearts. I have to climb off the altar. I have to say no to my pride. It's okay to let other people teach me how to do this and the more that you and I do this the more we will become the redemptive community that God intends us to be I'm humbled to be the pastor of this church humbled that God made a way for me to be a shepherd here I'm humbled that you to some degree in God's economy chose me but I'm here by God's design and so are you And I believe, having been here the short time that I have, that we have a responsibility in this community. Community church has been here for a long time. Our eight months of wandering in the wilderness, as it were, has passed. We have a job to do. But it is a job that is too great for us unless we are founded upon individually and corporately our Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom we can do all things because it is He who strengthens us. Pray with me. Father, we thank you today for your word. God, I am reminded um, of the words of one of my professors who used to say, my greatest fear for you is the same that I have for myself. Not that you would fail, but that you would succeed at doing the wrong things. God, I pray that you would help us to recognize this morning, though some of us are vocationally set aside to serve the church, to serve you and the church. And most of us are bivocational that our primary calling is to be your sons and daughters living as ambassadors for Christ in this world. And I pray, Father, today that, uh, that each man or woman would do an inspection of their own hearts to know that they really know you, that you are the rock upon which they have founded their life, that it is your sacrifice who has made them whole and that they are called to follow you And not just individually, but then to lock arms together with one another in the body that you've placed us in, to be the church in Gunnison and in the surrounding valley. Lord, we confess today, this is not our church. It is yours. You are the chief cornerstone. You are the shepherd. And we simply desire to know you better and to serve you well. So we ask for your spirit to do among us what only you can do. Father, for the person here today who does not know you, I pray that they would recognize from something as secular and simple as Maslow's hierarchy of needs that if the most they could ever achieve is self-actualization, the end of life is still going to come and they will stand before you on their own merits. But to turn to Jesus Christ is to find a perfect sacrifice for my sin and adoption into your family. I pray, Father, that they would embrace today the gospel. For the rest of us, as Christ followers scattered all along a spectrum of the spiritual journey, God, I pray that you would use what is happening in our lives at this present moment to draw us closer to you, which is to lead us away from ourself. And in so doing, Father, would you grant us not only abundant life, but as a church, would you do greater things among us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.